Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad this week. We've got interesting stuff. We actually got good cases this week. Yeah. Not the Division 8 <laughs> cases of laughable and stupid cases we had last week, but some really interesting things that are occurring. Yeah, no, I think it will be full of lessons today. And next week, 6th December? Yeah, all the new changes around the fixed-term contracts come into place. So please be careful and double-check all the contracts. However, I think they've recently just announced new changes where a very small subset of industries, like universities, for example, will have a pause on this until next year. But for the majority of us, the new rules will apply. Yeah, let's, we'll, let's we'll bring it up to date and give you a bit more detailed description next week. We might actually do it as our core topic on maximum term contracts. What do you think? <laughs> on fixed terms in general, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. so let's do that next week. We just made that up. You can tell <laughs> we're pretty free moving with this. Yes, Flora, we're getting on with it. So <laughs> Psych has a code in ACT, so it's really only Tasmania and Victoria now, isn't it? Yeah, so really there is no excuse for anyone because in every state and territory, there is now a code or regulation. Except, except for Ta- Victoria. And Tasmania? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right, and Tasmania. And the other part, of course, is the ACT have picked up those major psych hazards of sexual harassment as being an immediate, thus sexual assault as being immediately notifiable mm. to the regulator. So we're starting to see that grow. In Victoria, when the code, if and when the code comes through, yeah. it is likely that the six monthly notifiable Incidents, in other words, an incident occurs at the six monthly report to the regulator, there'll be a requirement to notify any bullying, sexual harassment, workplace violence. Yep. I think over the next two years, we'll start seeing this drift to an immediately notifiable issue because we're seeing the prosecutions happening in these areas. At some stage, all the regulators have got to say, well, if it's that serious, it is got to be a notifiable incident. Yes, it's not a laceration. If we say psych hazards are a major risk, We've got to make them notifiable. Yeah, so, look, I think that's a place for us to wait and see, but that's what I think will be coming in the next two or three years, and I think we should start dealing with those issues like they're notifiable now and responding immediately. Agreed. I would strongly recommend everyone do check out this code. They have really good practical examples of how to identify it within your business, like looking at records, like absentees and things like that, like all the stuff that we advise. They've got step like they've been listening to us. It honestly does. <laughs> but it, it, I think compared to a lot of the other codes, it's much more practical than theoretically. You mean it's more practical than Queensland? <laughs> seven million pages and it requires <laughs> you to enter documents every single day. Yeah, no, it is. Well, it's a good resource. <laughs> yeah, so it's a better resource than Queensland. I, I don't think I'd want to have a business in Queensland. <laughs> okay, so let's go on to the next thing, which is ignorance is not bliss. This is, can I say, the district court, Andrew Scotting, who is an ex-prosecutor and was a pretty hard-on prosecutor when he was there and I had a couple of cases against him really took the outer limits of where the law was. But I think a really interesting case, I don't disagree with him. I want to say that. Yeah. I don't disagree with what he's done. Yeah, so this has definitely been driven from his own beliefs, but I think it was the right decision. Oh, you didn't enter then. What this do you mean? Driven from his own beliefs. What? You just literally <laughs> set out. But it's the right law. So essentially this was a employee who was a truck driver and he was offered to become the director of his cousin's company. He had absolutely no involvement in the day-to-day running of the business. Nor made any inquiry. Yeah. 
He had no knowledge at all in the business. And about two days before the incident happened, Safe Work had attended site and issued improvement notices because there was massive risk from falling from heights and there were no swims. They provided us swims from one of the other associated entities, but nothing. And then an apprentice. Later. That was a few weeks later after the yeah. incident. Yeah. And then two days after that, an apprentice fell through a hole in the roof and obviously they got charged. And it was so good because he was not operational at all, but he was still charged under Section 27 and 32 because by signing on and agreeing to be a director, you're taking on that legal obligation. And look, the interesting, so there's two really interesting paths. This. I think Nina and I have been probably rattling on long enough to say at the moment we're seeing regulators and courts dealing with directors getting into trouble as officers because they had an operational role in the wrongdoing that occurred. So we've seen it in the recent sexual harassment cases. We've seen it in a whole range of cases. But this is really an outlier and it's the law. The law is very comfortable because the law doesn't say operational officer. It says no. officer. In fact, yeah. in Section 27, it actually sets out the obligations of officers in an objective sense. So that raises the second issue. In, in Victoria, officer probably wouldn't have been prosecuted because they wouldn't have had the subjective knowledge of risk. Yeah, because he had absolutely no idea. But if he had have been told about WorkSafe inspectors' attendance at site and then made no further inquiry, he would definitely be able to be prosecuted in Victoria. Now, Victoria is the only one that has a subjective knowledge test in Section 144. Mm-hmm. Every other state and territory now has the objective test based on the five criteria of know the business as a whole. Like know the controls. Know the controls, sure be aware of current law, all yeah. those sort of things. So... I think for Nina and I, I mightn't have always enjoyed being against this particular judge because he's always on the other side of me, but I do commend his courage in going forward in this. And when you read his commentary, it is compelling. Yeah, it's really It is right and it is the future of where workplace law is going to go for officers. So for all those people who have directors and CEOs sitting near them, get a hold of this case and say, it could be you. Yeah, and he was fined $120,000. That's after the discount. So yeah. it's not an insignificant amount. It is really a wake-up call that they're going to start pursuing non-operational directors. And I think the other part of, you know, because that's right, it was it's a regulator who did this. Remember, they do thin end of the wedge too, so they mm. start off seeing pecuniary fines. The next thing would be to say, well, it is reckless not to take that level of interest in the business, and then you've got the risk of going to jail. So great case. It's the beginning of something. The next two to three years, we will see an officer go to jail. I don't have any doubt about that. And maybe an operational one that goes first. But this is a case that could have easily been a reckless endangerment case. This is one where he could have been pursued and sent off to jail. And in two or three years time, he will be. Yeah. All right. Well, look, let's go to the next one, Steggles. I always like saying Steggles. I don't know what it is about (laughs) Steggles and chickens that gives it to me, but I do. Nina, this is a, we'll dig in the facts in a second. This case to me is a case which speaks to an employer getting it right and going, look. Trying to do the right thing. Yeah, we've got someone who's clearly got some mental health issues. We're going to continue to speak through that lens. That's really bad metaphor because lens is for seeing, not speaking. But we're going to continue to shape the language and the structure in which we deal with it as a compassionate and generous employer trying to land it right. Mm. And Maybe you've got a better understanding of the facts in it because I think you wrote it. But yeah, tell, tell us a little bit so about the facts. It involved an employee who had mental health issues, and she had been stood down because she had been involved in a physical altercation with another employee where they'd raised fists at each other and threatened to hurt each other. So she got stood down, and she disclosed that 
she was suffering PTSD. Like previously she'd been disclosed with, I cannot say that word, schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, Did yeah. Did I say it right? Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, and so she provided two medical clearances and Steggles? Yeah, Steggles. Steggles. I didn't even write this stuff. <laughs> <Do not laughs> accept them and she said on that basis they forced her to resign. The reason they didn't accept it is the first one was by a nurse and the second one was basically the exact same and a doctor had just signed off on it and it provided absolutely no detail about how she could safely come to work. She had a history of disciplinary issues where she had threatened to attack other workers because they were in her close area and they were on a production line. Like everyone is rubbing elbows and they said they couldn't ensure her safety back at work until she provided further medical evidence. And it's worth just stopping in this stage because at this moment we've got two matters where people who are not doctors have provided evidence about a person's fitness to work when they've suddenly become fit to work after a protracted period of not being fit to work. Mm. And there is a series of cases Grand BHP, a number of cases that say, look, where there is a sudden change in the, in a person's capacity and you're given evidence which is equivocal, it is reasonable for you under Ramsey and Blackadder, the original case of direction to get a medical assessment, to seek a medical assessment from a trained specialist doctor. And clients struggle with this. They say, but I've got a psychologist or I've got someone writing to me. The answer is if you don't have clarity about what is this change that was affected in a person who's gone from position A, totally unfit for work, to tomorrow, totally fit for work, your obligations under safety law are not to turn a blind eye. They are to say, no, I don't accept that. It's, I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm going to need some verification from somebody who is properly credentialed to give that evidence. Yeah. Okay, so look, I think this is a great case. Stickles won. Yeah, they said it was, they were treating her differently, like, had it been anyone else who didn't have this history, they probably would have accepted the medical clearance. Mm. So they were clearly treating her differently on that basis. But the court found it was necessary and valid in this case to ensure her safety. So, so there's safety a difference between discrimination. Yeah, well, what it shows is that discrimination law is about unlawful discrimination, not about discrimination. Yeah. And I think that's... Yeah, that's a really good clarification. I yeah, think, yeah, I think that we need to understand and look that through. So let's jump on the next case. But again, you notice no Division 8 cases? We made that phrase up for crazy cases last week. No mm-hmm. Division 8 cases. All good. Here's another case. Well, this is pretty close to a Division 8 case. This yeah, is a, that was weird. Yeah, this is a case where the individual who was involved got into some trouble. Okay, the Zealots got into trouble with the organisation, didn't perform in the manner they expected, admitted, he's a patent attorney, admitted that he hadn't dealt with the client in the speed that he ought to have dealt with the client. Yeah, and he made weird excuses like they weren't going to pay, but it was a long-standing client who'd always paid yeah. on time, yeah. They got angry. They then made the classic thing of bringing an external consultant to help, external HR consultant. I'm not criticising external HR consultants. There's some of you who are listening, but I just want to be clear you could tell that at that stage somebody offered this organisation an opportunity to get rid of this guy. And what happened is, as they did the investigation, they came up with the fact that he'd also been doing personal browsing for things with his own interests. And one of his explanations on was... On his work computer. Yeah, yeah, on his work computer. He'd been too busy. And some very smart person said, well, dishonesty is serious misconduct. And I suspect that's the HR consultant. And as a result of that, he was terminated for dishonesty. And the court after they picked themselves up off the carpet. From what was the dishonesty that he was browsing? That he was browsing, yeah. What? Oh, yeah, okay. so in other words, he said he was too busy, but he had time to do stuff for him. Oh, right. Yeah. I see. Really good commissioner in this, by the way, and obviously 
didn't disclose their sense of humour, but I can tell you now, as I read this case, I started to giggle and I realised what a contrivance it was, how crazy it was, and they terminated him. And the court said, well, that's just a joke. Everyone browses these days. If you really want to act with dishonesty, put it to him. But this is not might be a valid reason, but it's certainly not a fair and it's harsh, okay? So can I just say don't go looking for reasons to terminate people. When we discipline people, what we're trying to do is get better behaviour. So the questions that I normally ask, and I have these meetings at least once a week when we're talking about performance is, what is the behaviour we're complaining about? How have we enabled this? What is it about us that has allowed this? Because I can guarantee as you go back, this is not the only issue they've had with this person. But I can also guarantee you they haven't dealt with it. So one of the first parts of performance management is to own your part of performance management and go, okay, so that's our problem. So we don't hurt people because we make mistakes. What we do is we have a meeting in minds and we say, look, we haven't done what we ought to do with you. You've been doing this for a while. You've done it again. I'm going to counsel you this time, but the next time it's going to be really serious. This is what good looks like. We're going to step behind you. We're going to put in a performance improvement plan. It'll be a generous one, not one that grinds you every day, And but we want to see you get better. You don't go into performance management with an eye to termination because yeah. if you do, you make crazy mistakes like happened in this case where you pull something out of your bum which seems like a silver bullet. And all it is is something you pulled out of your butt. That's what it is, mm-hmm. okay? Okay, so let's jump on to our next case. All right, again, a really interesting case. This is the anti-bullying jurisdiction, which is a sort of Gumby jurisdiction. You know? Yeah, but we're seeing more and more cases. We are starting to, uh, and funnily enough, we haven't seen the stop sexual harassment cases come through. There's only been two, yeah. none of which have gone to final. But we've started to see more bullying cases come through, yeah. and I think that's as psychological hazards starts to to gain parlance, starts to become a more frequent and better understood concept. People are doing it. Here, this was somebody who'd been bullied by two people. They'd been disciplined to stop it. The person who was bullied suffered real detriment and was off for 12 months as a result of it. The moment they returned, one of the people recommenced bullying. At the time of the application, that person had resigned because they were in the middle of an investigation where a gun was being pointed at their head saying, you're going to go. And therefore, there was no jurisdiction because there is no continuity of billing. But again, really good commissioner in this case, incredibly critical of leadership and basically said, look, when you're looking at a high-risk hazard like bullying, you're not looking at just a discipline. Now, what actually Global Express did, which was very good on the second occasion, was do all the things they should have done the first occasion, which is have excluded areas, ensure there was no contact, all those things which are the proper hierarchy of control response, but they didn't do it the first time, nor did they monitor it when a vulnerable person comes back to work, which they ought to have done. So as Nina and I have already talked about, we we know that psychological hazards are going to be more litigated. We understand that the responses to that will be much more significant from the safety regulator point of view. If the safety regulator got hold of this depressed, damaged person now, they'd certainly be thinking of prosecution. And they'd be wondering why the officers don't have a better system that prevents it. So officer liability would be coming. So I think this is a great case you chose. And I think it's enlightening and starts to illuminate where risk is coming. And that's more of what we're trying to do this week rather than just laughing at bad cases. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps we can jump on to our main theme for the week. Disparagement. So defamation really is our main topic, yeah. Yeah. I think for Nina and I, we've felt the frustration of post-COVID. We've had a a number of employers who've 
said to us things about past employees, which I totally get, and I think mm. at times it may sneak out the corner of my mouth when I shouldn't say it too. <laughs> or on Friday workplace briefing. <laughs> or on Friday workplace briefing where it definitely shouldn't happen. But what's happening now is we are living in a much more litigious world than we are five years ago. Oh, yeah. Five years ago, no employee would have ever thought or contemplated in bringing defamation proceedings. That's not the case now. Can I just say, five years ago, nearly no employer brought defamation proceedings against a current or past employee either because the proceedings are so expensive by their very nature. But it's changed. The commercial world is much sharper. The margins are smaller. And it's, I feel like, more normalised through the media because we are seeing outside of the employment relationship just a lot more defamation claims being brought. We are. We are seeing a lot more. So what I thought I'd talk to you a little bit about is before we go into Barcos, which is the most recent case, is what is defamation? So defamation arises where I publish something, that is whether it's a statement that I write, whether I go on to Friday Workplace Briefing. Social whatever, media posts. Yeah, whatever it is, publication requires a recipient. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to prove is there was a publication that was received by somebody. That the nature of that particular publication carries an imputation. An imputation is a meaning, so it doesn't have to be an actual word. You can publish something absolutely true, but the manner in which you publish it, if it has an imputation. So that it has to have a negative connotation. Yeah, which could harm, hurt or humiliate. Yeah. Then you've got a defamation. And then there are a series of defences like fair comment, if we're talking about how FCW are going as a business and, and they're an aggregational business and they're driving hard into the world and someone says carelessly driving hard into the world. I don't know if we are. But if someone were to say that, I couldn't bring an action against the individual who said no. that. And uh, truth is another one. Yeah, well. but it, with fair comment, if it's something that's within the public domain, truth is a partial defence in New South Wales, full defence down here. There is also qualified privilege, so it might be something that's reported from court, for instance. So there's a series of defences. It's a very structured area of work. But what we are seeing, and, and Barcos is a really interesting case that just went through our county court case, where a once employee of an organisation left and the prior employer went on their Facebook and made some comments about dishonesty yeah. and behaviours, none, none of which were true. Now, the thing that creates aggravated damages or the thing that creates real cost in defamation is where you can demonstrate malice. So where someone says something with the intention of hurting, that dramatically builds up the damages, mm-hmm. okay? So, and that's called malice in defamation. And that's what happened in this case because the reason for the publication was resentment and anger yeah, and, to, and to hurt this guy in his new business. Yeah. Okay? So really good case to talk about because this is a past employee bringing a claim against a current employer. Yeah. And he won $90,000. Yeah. I think... His costs, by the way, he probably won't get indemnity costs, so he'll probably lose it all in costs because running a trial to the district court in defamation is probably three to $400,000 in total costs. Wow. Because there there's a complex series of stages that goes with it. But my point about all this is, remember, an employee can sue an employer and a person who's a leader, but a company, unless it's injurious falsehood, which is a much harder test, cannot say it has suffered loss in defamation unless it's has under... I've forgotten under 15, under, I forgot what the rules are, for not-for-profit, there's a few small exceptions where a company can say they're defamed, but they're very, very limited circumstance. So this is really an individual's remedy, okay? Oh, so companies can never sue for defamation. Well, there are very limited circumstances oh. under which they can. I've forgotten what it is, and there are some not-for-profits who can, 
but basically most companies can't, okay? They can wow. sue for a thing called injurious falsehood, but that's a much harder test where you must prove loss. Now, the changes in defamation now show that to actually raise a claim, you must show that it has caused you financial damage. Yeah, okay? some kind of detriment, financial damage. So we want to raise this because there's been several cases around this. There was a NAB employee a few years ago who brought a claim. Oh, yeah, but yeah. that one was silly. Uh, well, <laughs> come on, you were saying to be like me. No, but it was. Oh, the farewell okay. message which said, you know, one person is leaving, we hope to be able to execute. But- it literally, I could read the message. Can and it was so it was done on your printer, I'm It was like, so-and-so will assume the role of platform owner for internet banking, replacing the other person's name. In addition to ensuring the successful delivery of in-flight work, the new person will also be tasked with working closely with the NAB Connect team to identify and execute on opportunities to bring the platforms close together. We like to thank the previous person for the significant contribution she has made to both the platform and digital, and we're working through next steps with her. How is that well, any she, negative Well, no, when she said the imputation was she failed to deliver it, and um, that might be self-awareness. Yeah, I, mean. I think that's <laughs> self-awareness. But the that's imputations important. are things that have to be reasonably held. Yeah. So it's not a subjective understanding of what's there. It is a person viewing that would reasonably draw the imputation. Yeah. So they're the examples. But I also wanted to talk about the Van Olsen case about non-disparagement, which I'll speak slowly. I'm told I speak too quickly. Non-disparagement clauses in deeds of release and release and restraint documents, which generally say you cannot disparage the employee and the employer. And what Van Olsen's case found was Van Olsen, when published, he was a journalist and academic, a criticism of Channel 9. Was it Channel 9 or Channel 10? Channel 10. I knew I'd get that wrong. But he analysed its failing, its, its commercial failing. He didn't deal with his termination. He dealt with it on evidence that was available to the general public. And his defence to disparagement was, well, I'm not disparaging about my employment. It's part of public knowledge. It's fair comment. And what the court said is there are no defamation tests or defences that exist. It is a matter of reading the contract. And what the contract said is you shall not disparage your employer. And it's undeniable that what you did is and therefore you've breached it. And in doing that, you've torn up the benefit. And therefore, in his case, he was paid money. There is a requirement to repay. That's an argument that sits there. If it was the other way around, you've been the employer gave a release for actions they may bring. You've re-enlivened their entitlement to bring it. So interesting times. I've raised this because... That is the only case recently on non-disparagement. Mm-hmm. It was a really good judgment, but it didn't deal with the day-to-day non-disparagement issues we have. Yeah. We've maintained in our disparagement causes the employee will not disparage the employer because we've got a case that says yeah. it provides us broader protection. But be aware there will be argument going forward from employees who are represented by plaintiff firms saying it's too broad. All right, let's get on to the case study. Yeah, the action-packed case study. Off you go. Gwen was sick of Charlie. Gwen was CEO of Build a Dream Bad, a seaside apartment developer on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia. Charlie was an architect employed by Bad and a panellist of the hit reality show Make Mine Magnificent, MMM, a renovation show for young couples creating flash homes, achieving capital growth and doing it on a shoestring budget. <laughs> Charlie had a detailed contract that carved out MMM but otherwise had watertight restraint clauses and exclusivity of work with BAD. 
Gwen thought Charlie was a pawn. <laughs> Charlie had recently been raising his concerns about safety on the bad developments, <laughs> literally bad developments. Gwen had pushed back and told him to stay in his lane. Gwen's brother, Cyril, was a sparky who was contracted in on bad sites. Recently, Gwen had appointed him as director to the bad board, saying to anyone who would listen <laughs> that it was to add some lived building experience to the board. Charlie raised concerns with Cyril particularly around the contractors they use in scaffold work where they had failed to cover the platforms at heights and often use loose boards that moved, leaving voids people could fall through. Two days after that conversation, a chippy employed by Bad slipped on a loose board and fell seven metres through a void, breaking his back. Charlie rang Cyril angrily and said, see what I said, what are you doing, nothing? Cyril replied he had no idea what was happening in the business. He said that Gwen had put him on the board to shore up Bad's relationship with the bank. To support that idea, she had also issued 5% of the bad Class A shares, which paid good dividends to Cyril when he was appointed to the board. When Gwen heard about the discussions with Cyril, she cracked it, called Charlie and fired him for disloyalty. Charlie said, think carefully what you're doing as there is big trouble if you keep doing it. She spoke to Cyril, got some advice from a lawyer and offered Charlie a deed with a release against workplace litigation and a non-disparagement clause. Charlie obtained advice that his case was worth close to $1 million, but happily accepted a $100,000 payment as compensation for the foregone general protections claim. Two weeks later, the Herald Sun spoke to Gwen, who said that Charlie was a talentless gossip, incompetent at his work, and disliked. She also was clear that she should be issuing injunctive proceedings preventing his new employment with a key competitor, which Charlie was due to start with three days later. Oh, gosh, that was long. Yeah, so who are the safety risks with? Absolutely, everybody. So, so Gwen's got to go to jail chance in that one. Cyril, on the most recent case we've talked, has got some real problems. I don't think Charlie's done enough either, really. Yeah. He's raised the concerns, like... Yeah, but he doesn't have an operational responsibility as an employee, so he's Section 25 obligations, yeah. exercise reasonable care to bring Wouldn't be it. reckless endangerment, but, yeah, I feel like he... Yeah, probably yeah. could get out of the six and twenty five. No, I don't reckon they would. I reckon they'd leave him alone because he's a he's a bit of a whistleblower. But the company, the bad company and the, the bad bad, company. bad directors are in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Is Charlie's restraint enforceable? So look, the answer to this is no. And the reason is because there was a termination and after Loon's case and poor Hall, if they never get the name right, it's very clear from the full federal court that if you terminate somebody and you repudiate and that repudiation is accepted, then unless you specifically apply in some release document to include the releases in, you are released from those restraints. So the short answer is Charlie is fine to go out and get work. But if she hadn't terminated and just done the deed, would the restraints No, no, that's the whole thing. And even if somebody, you are going to terminate someone and you really need the restraints, you must build them into the release document, Okay. okay? So the next question is, does Charlie have a good general protections claim? Here's here's a great one because the nature of yeah the nature of the disparagement for let let's start off tears up the release okay mm-hmm. doesn't entitle the recovery of the monies that were passed yeah but does allow him to reagitate the issue and his re- reasons for termination were raising safety complaints so they're in real strife because that's the power of breaching a non disparagement yeah repeated safety complaints. Yeah. And does Charlie have a good defamation claim? And the answer is, was there a publication? Yes. yes. Was it received <laughs> by a number of people, including yes. potential competitors, uh, potential clients? Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Was it done with malice? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> All Charlie has to show is that it's, it's suffered, he can prove loss, and he's up and running with his defamation claim. I don't think he would have had a $1 million general protections claim, though. Well, he got some advice. 
Oh, I can, think, I can think of some of the plaintiff's firms who may have told him that. <laughs> All right, on that basis. They're not, they're not ones we worry about greatly, but anyway. On the defamation episode, <laughs> please give us a thumbs up. <laughs> give us a thumbs up. Great to see you today. Lovely to catch up with you, Nina. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.